Hi everybody and welcome to New Hope Church. My name is Ian Buckley. Whether this is your first time here with us or you join us regularly, we're so glad that you're here. You know, this week it's been great to hear that we're moving to level two. And we in our small group are going to be hanging out in person this week. We can keep it under 10, so that's great. We're also looking forward to seeing each of you face to face as we move further and further down this path towards level one. Now, last week, we looked at how Joshua drew strength to move forward into unknown territory by doing three things. Number one, we saw that he reflected on the provision of God behind him when he was unsure about what was happening in the front. Secondly, he remembered the presence of God was with him right there in the middle of it. And thirdly, we saw Joshua draw great strength by resting in the promises that had been given to Abraham and to Moses and to him. So he knew that God had a plan that covered behind him where he was and going forward. Joshua also inspired God's people to reconsecrate themselves before they go into this unknown territory and to prepare for courageous action. So like Joshua, we too will have our challenges. But Jesus assures us, but he will always be with us wherever we are and whatever we're doing. He says you'll have troubles, but be of good cheer, for I've overcome the world. Now today, we're going to look at how to avoid hope defeaters that come into our lives. They certainly come into all of God's people's lives. Hope deflators, hope killers during this season of our lives. Now, one of the things I've noticed is that our knowledge of the scriptures dramatically affects our attitudes towards the present and also towards the future. Because the way that works is the more that we learn about what God has done in the years past, the greater our confidence we have about what he's going to do in the days ahead. It's clear from the evidence. God's church has survived many more severe and difficult seasons than our current one. The church globally has been through wars and plagues and even the great famine of 1315 through 1317, two years. The church emerged stronger and more vibrant. It had basically had a pruning, which is sometimes a good thing. Now, one thing is clear. As we look back in history and in our own lives, as we look back in our own lives, we need to diligently read our Bibles. That's what's clear. Why? So that we may have confidence from the lessons and the examples learnt before, confidence and hope in God's plan for us. You see, hope is rooted in what we do not see. There's a modern psalm written by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, and he was a poet. And one of the lines in that psalm that he wrote was, things are not what they seem. So, we can learn how to hope and what are some of the hope defeaters by learning from outstanding examples in God's people in difficult times. I want to start off with the first verse in your outline found in Romans chapter 15 verse 3 and the apostle Paul is speaking and he expresses his desire for God's people that's you and I look at what he says here Romans 15 13 may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. 
Now, Paul doesn't say, may your circumstances fill you with hope. Things may not look hopeful, but things are not what they seem. See, some people wait for their circumstances to bring them hope. And others bring hope to their circumstances. Now, there's a fascinating account in the Old Testament. You can pick it up in Numbers chapter 13. We touched on it uh, last week, where we saw that the 12 scouts were sent out by Moses to look at the promised land and to bring back a report and a recommendation. Now, as you may recall, 10 of them returned and said, we cannot go forward. The risk is too great. Things are too dangerous. That's 10 of them. Two of them returned and said, we can't go backwards. The opportunity is too great. And God is too strong for us to ignore this opportunity. Things are not what they seem. Notice these 12 spies, 10 and 2. They all looked at precisely the same situation. They faced exactly the same facts, the same dangers and the same opportunities. Two of them were filled with hope and 10 of them were no hopers. They had no hope at all. Now, as you might have heard, the two hopers were called, that's right, I can almost hear you saying it now, Joshua and Caleb. And they became heroes to this day. See, millennia later, on the other side of the world, in a little island called New Zealand, the names Joshua and Caleb still remain popular for baby names. On the other hand, even if you know your Bible well, can you name a single one of the other ten hopeless guys? You know what? They're in the Bible. I'll tell you their names. See if any of these ring a bell. Any of them. See if you know any parents that use these names. The wall is Shaphat and Egal and Hoshea, and there's Palati and Gideel and Gadi and Amiel, and then there's Sethur and Nabi. Imagine calling your kid Nabi. Wow. And then there's Gahul and Shemua. Shemua to me sounds more like a killer whale, but anyway, there we go. Now, I don't think that you or I can even look at a little baby and love it and not be filled with hope that this particular. The, the, the potential in this little life has. In fact, hope is another name that we give to babies. We have one in our family. Nobody that I know ever names their child despair. <laughs> Every child is a natural hoper. You see, we were born that way. And they, you can see that, they're convinced that they will walk and although they'll fall over a thousand times like a little Octavia, something deep in their soul keeps trying and they do not give up. And one day it happens. But then we grow up. Sometimes hope sadly dies. And the conviction that my life really matters and that I am going to walk and that this fall will not be fatal dissipates and that God says in Jeremiah 29 11 for I know the plans that I have for you declares the Lord plans to prosper you and not to harm you plans to give you hope and a future actually our hope has a name and his name is Jesus but sadly sometimes that vision 
fades and hope dies. And when hope dies, we die right along with it. And of course, this season, right now that we're in, of COVID-19, that can be a hope killer. Maybe you lost your job or your financial health was being compromised. Maybe you were alone or you're afraid or you're filled with resentment. Perhaps some of you listening may have been drinking too much and you're burned out and you're stressed out and you're demotivated and you're discouraged and you're wondering, how do I build damaged hope back up again? Well, if that's you, I'm so glad that you're listening to this message now from God's word with us. We're going to look today at a man in the Bible named Elijah who suffered a cataclysmic collapse of hope that was remarkable, sudden, and incredibly deep. But the good news is hope was reborn in him, and it can be for you, and it can be for me. Now, I want to say a word about how to read and study your Bible as we get into this account. The account that we're going to look at today, like the other accounts, are not like Aesop's fables. These are real people Real historical people. And the hero in the Bible is always God. Because, you see, God interacts with real, flawed, almost always, he interacts with morally ambiguous human beings like you and me. Now, when we read about them, we read them not to get some virtued principle stories, but to learn how life with God is gradually revealed on earth. And that's very true of this story. Elijah the prophet was a very human guy. And you can read about him in 1 Kings chapter 18. And he is one serious overachiever. You might know the story. Let me summarize it. He courageously confronts 450 idolatrous prophets of Baal single-handedly. Then he builds the altar with 12 stones, rebuilds it actually, and he digs trenches and he hauls wood and he butchers a bull and he prays down fire from heaven and then he defeats the prophets at great risk to his own life. Then, under his inspired preaching, multitudes of previously resistant Israelites fall to the ground and worship the one true God. Wow! Elijah prophesies to his mortal enemy, the wicked king Ahab, that there would be an end to a three and a half year long drought. Then Elijah climbs back from the bottom of the Kishon Valley, back up to the top of Mount Carmel, and prays for rain, which miraculously comes. Then Elijah tells the king to ride his chariot out to Jezreel, which is about 40 k's, and the king does. But we're told that Elijah has a burst a supernatural burst of spiritual energy. And in 1 Kings 18.46, we read this. The power of the Lord came upon Elijah, and tucking his cloak into his belt, he ran ahead of Ahab all the way to Jezreel. So this man gets up and hightails it, and he outruns a chariot. This man cannot be stopped. He's a machine. He's like Spider-Man and Captain America and Black Panther all rolled into one. Then, chapter 19, the wicked King Ahab tells his wicked, manipulative 
conniving wife, Jezebel, of Elijah's major triumph. And she is somewhat ticked off. So she sends a messenger to Elijah. And in 1 Kings 19.2, this is what it says. May the gods, small g, deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. In other words, you're a dead man. Now, as readers of the Bible, we all know that Elijah had faced way tougher adversaries and enemies than her. And he, in the past, just dismissed them with his hand, a wave of his hand. But what's more, this isn't really, when you look at it, a real problem. When Jezebel says there, if by this time tomorrow I don't take your life, that's what I call a threat formula. She wasn't being literal. Because Elijah now is a, a national hero, and she knows it. So this is just kind of like intimidation language. You, in other words, it's kind of like, you keep this up, you're going to hear from my lawyer kind of thing. Now what's more, Elijah knows the power of God. Now, if you've ever read the Bible closely, Old Testament scholars like David Hubbard talk about this. Next observation. Miracles in the Bible are not equally distributed throughout the scriptures. They're basically in three major clusters for three main reasons. Number one is the time of Moses. Let's sans the beginning, but the time of Moses. When God's people are being formed, we've got the ten plagues, the seas open up, and so on. Number two is a time when Jesus forms a church. There's a conglomeration of miracles around the The third time is this season of Elijah and his protege, Elisha, his understudy. This is when Israel is being prophetically challenged to come out of idolatry and live instead in the worship and the justice and the holiness of one true God. And Elijah's the man who then calls down fire from heaven, prays away the drought, outruns chariot. He's fed by the ravens of God at the brook Cherith, and he raises the dead. Remember the widow? He makes kings and he breaks kings. So, let's take a pause. If you and I were standing there, and Elijah is being threatened by that weasel Jezebel, we'd say, hold, hold, hold on, Jezebel. I think you've seriously underestimated Elijah. And if you think you can rattle him with one of your puny, hollow little threats, you're dreaming, right? Right? Elijah? Elijah? Has anybody seen Elijah? No, they haven't, because nobody has. 1 Kings 19.3 Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. But when he came to Bathsheba in Judah, he left his servant there. Now the text says he ran for his life. And we know he's a pretty fast runner. So this is running on steroids. He hits the southern border of the town of Bathsheba. That's where you could kind of leave Israel. It's kind of like when you get to Wellington at the border. And Elijah leaves his servant there and he immigrates to the wilderness of South Island. Whoops, sorry. Now, Dismissing his servant is symbolically saying, I'm leaving my job, I'm leaving my ministry, and he terminates his staff. Crossing the border is symbolically leaving the people of God of whom he was called to serve. 
And he goes into the Negev desert. It's a no man's land. And the scripture says this in 1 Kings 19.4. He came to a broom tree and he sat down under it and he prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord. He said, take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. Now, people who read the Bible and this account specifically sometimes wonder how could the triumphant, death-defying superhero of chapter 18 turn into this whining, hopeless crybaby in chapter 19? So, today, if Elijah were to see modern doctors, they may send him to a psychiatrist. Do you know why? Well, look at this. In chapter 18, we see, reasonably see, the signs of some use almost manic. Risky behavior. Check. Excess energy. Check, check. Here it runs a chariot, right? Confrontational. Check. Reduced sense of fear. Check, check. Then in chapter 19, we see the signs of depression. Diminished interest in activities. Yep. Chronic fatigue. Yep. Loss of energy. Yep. Depressed, affecting feelings and worthiness. Yep. Suicidal thoughts. Check, check. Change in appetite. Yes. Change in sleep habits. Check, check. Now, thousands of years ago, psychiatric diagnosis categories did not exist. So I don't mean to read them into the story, but I just thought I'd mention it because maybe you or somebody you know and love suffers from something like bipolar disorder. Or maybe clinical levels of anxiety or depression. Or obsessive compulsive disorders. Or disassociative disorders. Or autism or addictions. And here's the rub. Perhaps you wrongly thought that God could never ever use you again because you felt depressed or discouraged or you were full of anxiety or you had bipolar or autism. And all I want to say to you is that's a lie from the pit of hell. The Bible is not a book about paragons or models of moral virtue or mental and emotional health. Not at all. The Bible is a book about God and the surprising ways in which he gracefully works with and works through the strangest of people. Now, I want to say to you today that if you find yourself struggling with your thoughts, you are not alone. And God does not want you to be in despair. God absolutely has a purpose for your life, just like he did for Elijah. So I want to tell you about a few hope killers that I think flipped the switch for Elijah in chapter 19. And they choked out his hope for a little while. See, you've got to know what the enemy is before you can defeat it. You've got to know what the problem is before you can solve it. We're going to look at how God helped him get through. And maybe that'll help you. Maybe that'll help us learn as we learn to be disciples of hope in this strange season in the desert. The first hope defeater, the major hope defeater on your outline for Elijah was just fatigue. It was fatigue. Now that doesn't sound incredibly spiritual, does it? But fatigue is a hope killer. 
Can you imagine going through what Elijah had gone through in chapter 18 after confronting a whole nation of Israel um, and, one, and, and giving one of the boldest speeches in the Bible after taking on 450 false idolaters as a prophet single-handedly and then constructing an altar. These are heavy stones. Butchering the bull yourself. You ever done that? That's hard work. Praying down fire from heaven. Then lecturing the wicked king. Then climbing back out Mount Carmel, praying down the rain, ending the drought, and then out running a horse and chariot for 40 k's. Now, maybe he needs a breather. I have this feeling his adrenaline levels were off the charts because he wasn't Superman. He's just a normal guy. And can I say this? You're just a guy. You're just a woman. We're ordinary people. And one of the most amazing aspects of the story is Elijah pours out this amazing prayer. He says, I've had enough. I'm no good. Take me now. And you know what happens? God doesn't even answer him. Look at what he does. 1 Kings 19, 5 and 6. Then he lays down under the tree and he falls asleep. And all at once an angel touched him and said, Get up and eat. And he looked around, and there by his head was a cake. I guess that's the original angel food cake. Then Elijah took another nap, and the angel gave him a second cake. And theological scholar Joy Clarkson put it like this in a recent tweet. Never forget in the Bible that one time in the Bible, Elijah was like, God, I am so mad. I want to die. So God said, here's some food. Why don't you have a nap? So Elijah slept, ate, and decided things weren't so bad. Never underestimate the power of a nap and a snack. So that's the moral of the story. Never underestimate the spiritual power of a power nap and a power snack. For things are not what they seem. Elijah was just tired. Do you ever get tired? It's amazing. A few months ago, many people had never even heard of Zoom. (laughs) Now, one of the hottest topics, if you can look across the social media, is Zoom fatigue. In fact, I was just reading this week in Harvard Business Review and National Geographic, who both had noticed this phenomena. Turns out, if you stare at another person and yourself, minute by minute, hour by hour, we're not used to that, right? Plus, you'll look at yourself in a small box, and it turns out, that you're a whole bunch more wrinkled and look a whole bunch worse than you thought you would. So we get exhausted. Sitting in a chair, looking at a screen. Now I understand Elijah is not you. He doesn't have your stamina. He doesn't have your drive or your ability to thrive on junk food and go without regular sleep, staying up all hours of the night watching whatever. Elijah on the other hand was just a world-changing, king-challenging, nation-forming and altering prophet. He's not up to your speed. I get it. I get it. But you might consider you will never reach consistent spiritual renewal in a state of perpetual physical exhaustion. You will never reach consistent spiritual renewal in a state of perpetual physical exhaustion. See, you're an inhabitant of your body. And maybe this season has been a good time to address that. People wonder, hmm, I can't travel much. I can't shop much. 
I can't eat in as much. I can't go to the office or the gym. What should I do? Well, you could rest. You could sleep. You can eat healthy. You can cut down on caffeine or alcohol if they're getting in the way. You could take long walks, maybe with a friend, and maybe with a friend called Jesus. Maybe you could spend more time in his word. Now, did you ever notice that sometimes a difference between confident hope of Joshua and the defeated spirit of Shemua was just a good night's sleep? Vince Lombardi once said, sometimes fatigue makes a coward of us all. And sometimes, based on the Bible, the most spiritual thing that you can do and I can do is take a nap. Maybe that's why you tuned in today. But there's a second hope killer, a hope defeater. Fatigue is number one, and the second hope defeater is isolation. When God finally does speak to Elijah after some time, and the nap, snap, nap, snap kind of thing going on, God asks Elijah a question. And in 1 Kings 19.9, he says, What are you doing here, Elijah? Now that is a particular question about a physical location. God hadn't sent him there. He's just done his own thing, and he's there. Hey, Elijah, your calling is there, but you are here. Your mission is there, but you are here. Why are you here? But it's also a question of spiritual condition. How do I get here? How did the confident, faith-filled prophet of God become so despairing and hopeless and suicidal and then run away? How did I get here? See, God knows every single one of us asks that question at some point in our lives. And we all end up sitting under a broom tree in the desert, feeling alone and asking the question, how on earth did I get here? Elijah's response is in 1 Kings 19.10. He says this, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. So fear and discouragement had caused him to see only the dark side. He was feeling like a failure in spite of his very best efforts. Some of you may feel like that today. Now the Israelites have rejected your covenant, they've broken down your altars, they've put your prophets to death with a sword. And I'm the only one left and they're now trying to kill me too. In other words, he's saying, look how I have been treated. Nobody likes me, everybody hates me. I guess I'll go eat worms. You're probably saying that with Jezebel in mind. Now, I don't know about your family, but in our family, when we were growing up, one thing was very clear. Our mother never let us lads wallow in self-pity. It was just off the table. Why? Because it distorts your perspective in life and it makes it look hopeless. Self-pity breeds isolation. That's a great parenting tip I want to suggest to you. Do not let your kids wallow in self-pity. In chapter 18, Elijah is clearly aware that there were scores of other faithful prophets that love and serve the God of Israel and their lives are at risk too. 
Yet now, one chapter later, he forgets about them and says, I'm all alone. Wow. But God's response is so gracious. 1 Kings 19.11. He says, Go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. And then Elijah witnesses what is called a theophany, which is a tangible manifestation of the presence of God. There's a mighty wind and a great earthquake and a fire. Hmm. Sounds like Pentecost to me. Anyway, then sometime later, when Elijah was back in his cave, he hears a still, small voice. Now notice then, God asks him the exact same question. Round the roundabout. What are you doing here, Elijah? And we wait with bated breath to see how Elijah's now been changed and moved and challenged after the provision. Has he been in 1 Kings 19.14 I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars, and put your prophets to death with a sword. I am the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. Guys, he hasn't changed one iota at all. This is precisely the same speech. I checked it. You check it word for word. So the powerful spiritual experience of God was apparently utterly wasted on this guy. But God is not dumb. God tells Elijah there are thousands of others ready to stand with him. And he says, Elijah, you are part of a much larger community that could inspire you, that could encourage you, and that could model hope for you. That's what he says. Things are not the way they seem. So God has Elijah anoint a man named Elisha, who's going to become his student. And more than that, he becomes his partner and his friend. And God would say to you too, you are not so alone. Your enemy is not so strong. People are not so faithless and flaky and unreliable. God is not so distant. See, it turns out that hope is not a solo activity. Isolation will diminish hope, whereas connection will will multiply hope. Let me say that again. Hope is not a solo activity. It's a team sport. And isolation will diminish hope. But connection will multiply hope. And that's why we want everybody to be at our church to be part of a small group. And one of the things I love about this lesson is, is thanks to God and technology, anybody anywhere can be part of a group. See, small groups keep us from being isolated and the reminders of God's work. We had spent a couple of hours together just last night in our small group, learning from one another, sharing and encouraging one another. Small groups help us find and follow Jesus in our ordinary everyday lives so that Jesus might be formed in us. So every time Elijah would look at Elisha, his newfound protege, it would remind him that God's work will still go on and my efforts are not in vain. There is hope. Now this brings us to the last great hope diminisher. Number three, and that's worry. The third hope defeater is worry. 
So, number one, fatigue for sure. Number two, isolation. Yep. And it's really hard to worry and be hopeful. Now, this is the actual trigger for loss of hope in this account. See, Elijah was afraid and he ran for his life. Now, I have good news and bad news on this one. The good news is hope can exist right alongside concern and worry. The bad news is hope only exists alongside concern and worry. See, sometimes people think hope can be used to get us completely free of worry in this world and to avoid and escape worry so that I could finally have a worry-free, pleasant life. Actually, friends, it works the other way. What we hope for, we do not yet have. That means hope and worry are siblings. Isn't that great news? But that's okay, because our hope is not in hope. Our hope is in God. Our hope is not that we are strong or we are lots of energy and we are vital. Our hope is in God, that he is strong, that he is good. Now, Elijah had nothing new to say to the Lord. Did you notice that? But the Lord had a new message of hope for his frustrated servant. So God tells Elijah to take action. And in 1 Kings 19, 15, the Lord said to him, go back the way you came. Now, the Lord had many reasons for rejecting Elijah and leaving him right there in the cave to die. But he didn't take that approach. Notice this in Psalm 103, verse 10. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor punished us according to our iniquities, for he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. So instead, he turns to Elijah and he says to him, Return to your post and make a new beginning. And what's interesting in all of this is this. The writer tells us absolutely zip about how Elijah feels about this. Because before we heard a ton about Elijah's fear, his aloneness, his feelings about being a failure, his self-pity, his desire to die. We heard a ton about his feeling like he's the only one left that's being faithful to God. Then God gives him rest and food and quiet for more than a month. A month of recovery, of divine revelation, and probing questions and a new direction. Four things there. Now, is Elijah all charged up? Is he now super confident? Is he hopeful? Is he afraid? The text doesn't say. And all we know is, He did what God asked him to do. Now, my guess is that for the remainder of Elijah's life, he had to deal with them both. Elijah had to choose hope and manage fear. He had to choose hope and he had to manage fear. So what Elijah did was to obey God and to go back down the mountain and take courageous action. What he didn't do is say, well, this is a bit tough. I'm just going to retire into the desert where things will be pleasant and nobody will bother me. I'll withdraw into my cave and make my life manageable. Have you ever felt like that? Well, Elijah did. See, action is a very powerful thing. 
And friends, I want to tell you, it is much easier to act your way into a feeling than to feel your way into an action. See, when you act like a hopeful, courageous, expectant person, pretty soon you might start feeling more hope, feeling more courage, and feeling more expectancy. But if you just stay up in your closet, in your cave, waiting for your feelings to change, before you leave, you may never leave. And that, my friend, is not God's will. So, what would you do, Elijah? What would you do, Elijah, today, you? If you were feeling great hope in God, would you pray bold prayers? Would you give generous gifts? Would you take the initiative to reach out to friends? Would you decide to start learning a new skill for God? Would you commit to volunteer to build God's church in some helpful and meaningful way? Or would you confess to a hidden sin or addiction to a trusted friend and ask God for healing? Whatever you're going to do, do it. Like Elijah, when we are discouraged and we've lost hope, we need to stop waiting to feel hope and start acting in hope. I want to finish with a small quotation from a psalm of life by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, who is an American poet. A few lines from that. He says, Let us then be up and doing with a heart for any fate, still achieving, still pursuing, learning to labor and to wait. Life is not an empty dream and things are not what they seem. Would you bow your heads with me and pray? Father, thank you that you know every heart and circumstance of every person listening to this message from your word. Holy Spirit, would you comfort those who right now may be feeling hopeless about a job or a relationship which is squirrely or about an uncertain feeling about their future or their finances. Father, if they're feeling bewildered and just stuck. Lord, there are some who feel alone today. Some who feel abandoned that are listening to this. Would you, by your Spirit, help them remember that you are their loving Father and that you'll never abandon them? There are some here, there are some who feel like their life is out of control. Would you help them to feel and to realize that your power is greater than any problem that they will ever face and that your purposes out-trump any problems they encounter? Father, there are some here listening to this that feel like life doesn't really even matter and there's no purpose to their life. Would you help them to realize that you have a plan and that you can use even the tough stuff in life and use it for good? Thank you, Lord, that you have a greater purpose for our life when we surrender to you and say, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven and we find peace and comfort in that. Thank you that you are our hope and that you never disappoint us. 
May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. We are very blessed to be adopted by Jesus into his forever family. So let's now join the worldwide body of Christ and celebrate that incredible blessing. God bless.